0: And this is the Seventh Avenue Project. Robert Polly here. Today on the show.
1: Float beyond fear. Float beyond desire. Into this mystery of mysteries. Through this gate of all wonder. Open, naked eye.
0: That was the late Timothy Leary, of course, and it was 50 years ago, if you can believe it, that he and some of his university colleagues started a little thing they called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. They turned on a lot of people, extolled the potential of mind-expanding drugs, and helped launch a movement that, for many, defined the 60s. The broad outlines of the story are really well known by now, retold countless times, but here we are a half century later, and at least some people are still wondering, what the Really happened back then. One who's wondered is Don Latin. He's a longtime journalist and former religion reporter for the San Francisco Examiner and Chronicle, and he's just come out with a book called *The Harvard Psychedelic Club*. It looks back on those early years of the psychedelic movement through the lives of four participants: Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, both on the Harvard psychology faculty back then; Houston Smith, a well-known scholar of comparative religion who taught at MIT in those days. And Andrew Weil, then a Harvard undergrad and later a major figure and brand name in the alternative medicine industry. I'll talk to Don Latin about his book in the first part of our show, and then in a final segment, we'll hear a first hand account of the Harvard experiments from one of those who actually took part, former UC Santa Cruz professor Paul Lee. He was there, and he actually remembers. And now on to part one of our show a conversation with Don Latin, author of the Harvard Psychedelic Club. Don, I wouldn't necessarily ask uh, an economics reporter about his investment history, or um, say a sports writer about his athletic accomplishments. But right. but I'm going to ask you because of the nature of this book. Right.
2: Have you had acid? Oh yeah, I've had I've had it not for many years, but I, I've had it. Not only that, I actually write about it in an afterword. and, and uh, so I do talk about two particular LSD trips I had as, as a freshman in college. Actually, one of them was right down to Big Sur, right down the coast. One was uh, sort of the ecstasy and one was the agony. Uh, and it's also kind of a cautionary tale for people to watch out with these drugs because they are dangerous, especially psychologically dangerous. Mm. So, yeah, I do, get, I do get into that in the book.
0: And how did that experience way back in – was that the nineteen seventy two? How did that relate to your decision years later to, to write this book?
2: You know, uh, going through that, and it was a really t- tough time for me back in the early 70s. I mean, I had a really, not just a bad trip, but kind of a psychotic break. And sort of, I stayed stoned for like a week or so. i had flashbacks. You know, I used to think flashbacks were- uh, Propaganda. Uh, anti-drug propaganda. No, <laughs> they exist. <laughs> I can testify to that. Um, so, um, you know, I think that experience is actually one of the reasons why I- am so both fascinated and fearful of the mystical state. Mm. I think it has something to do with the reason I became wanted of becoming a religion reporter, which I never intended to do because I don't think of myself as a particularly religious person. Of course, you don't have to be religious to write about it, you know, uh, but, but, um, I think that's one of the reasons because it was kind of a place where I could kind of safely perch and be objective and, and, mm. and interview people about their religious experiences. And, uh, And uh, I never intended to to write about it as long as I did, which was twenty years. I used to like last two years on a two years on a Chronicle. Originally, at the Examiner, and then switched to the Chronicle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's 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 connected with my life in a lot of ways. Also, I you know I I got into searching for kinder, gentler ways to explore this same territory. So I got interested in Buddhism later on, uh, right after college, and. Uh, Zen meditation, and, you know, so both personally and professionally, I think my psychedelic experiences had a real impact on on my life and made me a different person. I mean, you see reality in a different way
0: after, you know, a mind-blowing experience like that. Um, Well, let's talk about what happened at Harvard, but first, I want to know why you picked these four. Um, You did pick two of the usual suspects, Leary and Alpert, I mean, two of the mainstays of the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Right. Uh, there were others involved who you didn't really uh, talk about much at all. Ralph Metzner, who's often considered the third horseman of the psychopalyps. He was a graduate student under Leary and Alpert right. uh, at Harvard, and he became another spokesperson for this new idea. Sure, of, well, he's uh, in the book. Ma- yeah, yes, he yeah. is. But he's not one of your principal four. Right. And there were still other people who took part in these experiments who went on to fame uh, later on. But you picked four specifically, Leary, Alpert, Houston Smith, the— scholar in religion, mm-hmm. and Andrew Weil, now known as maybe the, one of the leading figures in alternative medicine in the U.S., Dr. Right. Weil, right. as he's known. Right. How did you pick those four?
2: Well, you're right. I mean, in a perfect world, in a fair world, <laughs> Ralph Metzler would definitely be on the cover. There's no doubt about it. And when you read the book, you see that. Mm-hmm. You know, he co-wrote The Psychedelic Experience. With He actually probably wrote The Psychedelic mm. Experience, actually. And I had a long interview with Ralph uh, in his office in Marin County. He still lives up in the North Bay. And, well, you know, as a story t- – you know, I'm, I'm basically a storyteller, and this is narrative nonfiction. So uh, the whole story about Andrew Weil, I mean, he's uh, – you know, he of he's the villain. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, he's uh, – so as a storyteller, it, it, gives, it gives us a certain narrative tension to have him in the story. Plus, that's the part of the story that hadn't been told. So that's really the the main reason. Houston Smith. I mean, he was very involved. I mean, he p- people forget. I mean, he was on the board of directors of uh, International uh, Federation for Internal Freedom, if if, <laughs> and some of the uh, early like uh, psychedelic review. Uh, he was very very involved. Uh, he was at the Good Friday experiment. He was. He took psilocybin at the Good Friday experiment. So Houston was definitely belongs there. I think. And also, you know, they, they all are, are better known, and they've sold a lot of books. So, you know, one reason they're on the cover is we hope that people who are interested in these four visionaries who've bought their books will be interested in taking a look at this book. So, you know, that's I, – I, but I, I, I think as a storyteller, I th- it's, it was the right way to go.
0: Uh, you mentioned a, a number of experiments and, and events that we're going to discuss in the course of this conversation. Um, but before we get to those, let's uh, introduce at least two of these guys. Leary and Alpert, let's say uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 1960, Harvard University. Who are these two guys, both members of the psychology faculty? Right. We have to go back a little farther
2: to the summer of 1960, and that's when uh, Timothy Leary was on his summer break from Harvard. He was actually on a three-year contract with Harvard. He actually technically wasn't a professor at Harvard, but he was a lecturer and a, and a research psychologist. Um, but very respected in his field. I mean, he was a, he was a, um, he had written a book that was like, named the book of the year by the American Psychological Association a couple of years before. So, anyway, he was he was at, in the middle of this three year contract at Harvard, and he took uh, some psilocybin mushrooms uh, on his vacation on at a villa outside of Acapulco with some other some friends and some colleagues, uh, academic colleagues from other other schools. And basically had what he later called the most profound religious experience of his life on these mushrooms. And he came back to Harvard absolutely on fire, uh, convinced that these drugs, psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs, were going to not just revolutionize psychology, because they really do offer you a window into how the mind works and how madness <laughs> feels, uh, but change, eventually, he thought, change the world. Um, Albert was actually away for the first few months of this. He was uh, out in California on a temporary teaching assignment. So it was actually Ralph Metzner and Houston Smith who were kind of brought in f- first, and some other graduate students that that uh, started this uh, Harvard psilocybin project. But Albert uh, came back uh, early, in, early, early next year, in uh, beginning in 1961, and was turned on by Leary in his home in Newton, Massachusetts. And they really became the two leaders of this project. Now,
0: they were both, in their own ways, uh, unlikely people to be found at Harvard at that time. I get the impression from reading your book. I mean, Leary, Timothy Leary, had had an interesting history. He'd been to West Point. Uh, Was he kicked out of West Point? He was kicked out of a
2: lot of places. Kicked out of a lot of places. Sort <laughs> yeah. of a rebel. For, uh, for, for
0: basically alcoholism. Alcoholism. He'd had that in his yeah. history. Yeah. Um, academically, he'd bounced around a bit. He eventually got a Ph.D. in psychology from Berkeley. Is that right? Right, right. And, uh, and made a name for himself uh, after a book in, in the late 50s that you mentioned, right. a title right. of which I forget. but I'm forgetting it,
2: too. But It's a per-
0: personality assessment. Something about personality assessment. But, but mixed into his history was a wife who'd committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. A drinking problem that you just talked about. Uh, Richard Alpert, son of a wealthy, famous lawyer in the Boston area, but um, not someone who had excelled really academically. A lot of people never would have fingered him as someone who would get an appointment at Harvard.
2: Yeah, yeah. He was, he was a great teacher. He was uh, as as anyone who, who who heard him speak later on as Ramdas before his tragic stroke about ten years ago. Hmm. He's just so articulate and charming and funny and self deprecatory, and he just he's a, he's just a very charismatic speaker. Both and, of them
0: very charismatic.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, but in different ways. And, but uh, but uh, and Alpert wasn't you know particularly. I mean, he was brilliant in his own way, but he really wasn't in in a scholarly way. He his, his real strength was the students loved him. And he was a great lecturer, mm-hmm. and that 's really what he, and he had some connections you know from his previous experience at Tufts and Tufts and elsewhere you know wesleyan yeah Wesleyan, yeah, so you know like anything he had some he knew this guy, David McClellan, who was the person who hired both uh, uh, Albert and Leary, so you know he had some connections, and that 's how it you know, really works in any, <laughs> all worlds, I guess, including the academic world. Um, but, you know, they were both very, like I say, very popular and uh, and
0: brilliant in their own ways. Mm. If we were going to look at the ingredients uh, that went into this um, synchronistic meeting of Alpert, Leary, psilocybin, eventually LSD, the counterculture, one factor that has to be mentioned, your book makes a point of it, is psychology, the field itself, and the kind of aura that was surrounding psychologists at this time yeah, in American yeah. history.
2: Well, psychology was booming. I mean, Time magazine earlier in the 50s put Sigmund Freud on the cover. That's always a single of, signal of something. <laughs> And you know, it was actually after the war, a lot of you – know, we, we, think, we don't think of post-traumatic stress syndrome from soldiers as, a, as an issue back in World War II, something we invented in Vietnam or something. But it was an issue back then too. And so a lot of uh, returning servicemen had a lot of psychological problems. And so there was a lot of hiring and a lot, and a lot of need you know, through the VA and other places for, for psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, So that was all happening. And the whole beginning of the humanistic psychology movement was just starting. But at Harvard, you know, uh, Skinner, B.F. Skinner was at Harvard and the behaviorists were really in vogue. And Leary and Alpert were kind of the anti-behaviorists, really. So they were, you know, they were all, even before the mushrooms, Leary was a, a real rebel. I mean, one of the things that was so controversial about their drug research is they didn't just give drugs to people and, like, take notes. They took drugs with them. (laughs) And, um, you know, they did this also with prisoners at Concord Prison. And, you know, there's nothing unusual about giving drugs to prisoners, using prisoners as guinea pigs, you know, in drug tests. Some horrible stuff has been done in the the name of, you know, science and pharmacology. Now, they were doing – they were spending time with these guys and talking to them and getting to know them. But, see, Leary was already doing that. Before he was, he was questioning the whole, you know, researcher uh, subject model uh, in, in 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 research, and the whole patient, you know,
0: doctor model. Yeah, he was questioning this idea of the um, the therapist as authority figure, as aloof from the patient. Instead, exactly. he, he and Albert both sort of espoused an idea of just sitting down with people and conversing with them, and just being helpful as equals. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which they took into their their psilocybin experiments. So Leary got turned on, as you said, in uh, Mexico in 1960. It the was summer m- of 1960. Summer yeah. of 1960, and it was psilocybin mushrooms, right? Which had already gotten a lot of attention in America because of a uh, Life magazine article, right? In, right. in R 1957. Gordon yeah, yeah. T- yeah. Tell, tell us about this guy. Well, wa-
2: R. Gordon Wasson was. Um, Kind of an amateur explorer of, of exotic fungi, <laughs> and uh, he had this Russian-born wife, and they'd go out, they would go traipsing around the world looking for d- different types of mushrooms. He wrote an article uh, about his mushroom experiences in Mexico, very similar to Leary's. You know, finding a, a curandera, the you know, like a shamaness. Uh, Who You know, these were obviously used in Native American, you know, religious rites for who knows how long, centuries at least. And um, so anyway, Wasson wrote a very, very positive story about the magic mushrooms that was published in in Life magazine, and I believe it was 1957, so just a few years before Mm -hmm. Larry. And of course, the other character who's very important, even more important in terms of this story, Harvard Psychedelic Club, is Aldous Huxley. Who, even before uh, Wasson, he he wrote *The Doors of Perception*, which was published in 1954, about his mescaline uh, experience uh, in his home in the Hollywood Hills in the spring of 1953. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, this kind of serendipitous coming together of all these different characters, uh, you know, at Harvard in the fall of 1960. One of them was Huxley, who just happened to be giving a series of lectures at uh, MIT right down the road from Harvard. And he was already friends with, with Houston Smith. Houston knew Huxley from back in the 40s. So Huxley is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He hears about Leary, because Leary's the talk of the town, you know, this, what's going on at Harvard? They're taking all these drugs and, you know, <laughs> people were, like, fascinated with it. And Huxley was there. So Huxley, um, uh, Huxley and Leary met uh, at a Boston restaurant on the very night that John F. Kennedy was elected
0: president. <laughs> there was also a, a prehistory of, of uh, exploration with psychedelic compounds um, Uh, by all kinds of people. You mentioned Aldous Huxley. There is a guy who actually, I I think, was the guy who turned on Aldous Huxley, Humphrey Osmond, an English Mm -hmm. psychiatrist, who was doing this. There was um, a very interesting guy on the scene um, that a lot of people at that time who were interested in sort of alternative spirituality were familiar with, Gerald Hurd. Gerald Hurd
2: was kind of a freelance philosopher uh, in England a writer he was a radio man he was uh the first science commentator for BBC radio back in the twenties and thirties i believe and um a brilliant guy really ahead of his time uh some people call him the father of the new age movement or the original hippie um but anyway he he was he Was friends with Huxley. They were in this group called the Bloomsbury Circle, which was kind of a bohemian crowd of writers and artists and assorted hangers-on in London. and And they became very good friends. And they actually came over to the United States in 1937 on the same steamship. Uh, uh, Huxley was was with his wife Maria, and Gerald Hurd was with his male partner. He was gay in the in the closet, gay with his his lover Christopher Wood. They came over, uh, and uh, for a while, he, it looked like uh, Heard was going to get a job at Duke, uh, teaching at Duke. But they decided to come out to check out the scene in California. So they drove across the country. They stopped in, in Taos, New Mexico, where they visited uh, Frida Lawrence, D.H. Lawrence's <laughs> widow, because uh, Huxley and uh, Lawrence had been very close back in, in, in England. Uh, Lawrence was, of course, dead by this time. But, um, I mean, just – you know, I wish I could have talk, talked more about that part of the story. You know, there's just so many aspects to this story. Anyway, they wound up in Hollywood, and Huxley gets a job writing screenplays. Never wrote anything all that fantastic, but uh, got a job churning out screenplays for the studios, making good money. And, and Heard wound up uh, starting this kind of a bohemian monastery – uh, called Tribuco College of Prayer in the Santa Ana Mountains, east uh, of, of Los South, east of Los Angeles, and this was an amazing place. Huxley spent a lot of time there too. Uh, talk about ahead of its time! It was really, actually, it was the model for Esalen Institute, which a lot of people have heard of. At Big Sur, started by Michael Murphy and Richard Price, who got the idea after meeting Gerald Heard. And, and, and
0: Gerald Heard, along with being this. Um, interesting, uh, very eclectic thinker and writer uh, was experimenting with LSD also in the 1950s.
2: Right, they were experimenting with LSD really early on. And they had, uh, you know, actually, Heard is the one who got Huxley interested in religion and mysticism. Huxley was originally, uh, had no interest in any of this. He was a very cynical guy. He was a satirist. And it was really Heard that got him looking at this whole, aspect of human life in a, in, in a new way and got him interested uh, in in the subject. And then it was Huxley who got who did psychedelics first, and he got a herd interested. And all kinds of people, they had this kind of psychedelic salon going in, in L.A., and one of the people who passed through, and this is in the book, too, this is a whole other story, uh, but uh, was uh, Bill Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill this W. Is Bill W., which is long after he sobered up and started – and started uh, AA.
0: Um, so, um,
2: in fact, Gerald
0: Hurd turned him on. Yeah, in Gerald
2: 1956. Hurd, yeah, Sydney, acid. Sydney, Sydney Cohen was, the, was a researcher at UCLA who was. You have to remember that LSD was legal, you know, at this time, and it, it, people didn't look at it like they do now. We, we think of LSD now; we think Grateful Dead, San Francisco. Jefferson Airplane, you know, we, but this was bad trips. It, yeah, bad trips. At the time, this was seen as a promising new tool for psychology. It was uh, all kinds of people were taking LSD. I mean, most Americans heard of LSD the first time when Cary Grant took it. A Hollywood gossip columnist interviewed Cary Grant, who sa- who mentioned that he'd just taken this drug with his therapist called LSD. And it was like 10 years of th- psychotherapy was a, in, in one session. And that was really the first time people heard about LSD in, in in this country. And it was in a very positive context. And it really wasn't until Leary kind of went uh, you know, on his crusade and really went to, went too far on his crusade that this whole backlash uh, happened. And then everyone started taking it, and including a lot of people who probably shouldn't have taken it in the circumstances in which they did.
0: One of the fascinating things about this story um, and reading it in your book is – It's a time, as you say, before the attitudes around drugs, the narrative had sort of hardened into the story we know today. And attitudes were still very fluid, very flexible. So you had Life magazine doing a very positive article about this amateur mycologist, retired banker who goes to Mexico and takes psilocybin mushrooms. You have Time magazine Writing glowingly about the Good Friday experiment, which right. which I'll ask you about in just a moment, uh, took place at Harvard with psilocybin, involving some Harvard Divinity School students and over Newton
2: Divinity students and
0: over yeah. Newton <laughs> Seminary. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, but uh, it, it is a time when it didn't break cleanly along liberal conservative Not lines. Uh, it wasn't identified necessarily with the counterculture with revolution. It was a wide open you know frontier.
2: Yeah, it, there was people didn't have preconceived ideas. Well, they did. I mean, but they were they were changing. I mean, the word psychedelic, for one thing, hadn't been coined yet. It was later coined by Huxley and Humphrey Osmond. These drugs were called psychomimetic drugs, which we, me- or psychotomimetic. Mic- yeah. Yeah, they mimic they mimic mimic psychosis. That's that, <laughs> and, and they were thought to do that, and actually they can do that too. Um, so that's the idea that a lot of psychologists had. But other people were starting to question that. One one was this guy, Humphrey Osmond, who was doing a research to treat alcoholism uh, with LSD, which is one of the reasons that uh, Bill W., the AA guy, got, mm-hmm. got interested. Mm-hmm. So that was going on. and um, But, you know, I think it was really Huxley who... Started looking at this in a these these states in a spiritual way because 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 of his association with Gerald Heard he had read a lot of, of of mysticism all kinds of mysticism Christian mysticism Buddhism you, you name it
0: so back to uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert at Harvard uh, circa 1960 both now let's say have had their baptism uh, in psychedelic drugs mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin for both of them yeah. And uh, Richard Alpert's uh, now legendary first trip um, resulted in him running from uh, Larry's home in Newton, Massachusetts, to his own parents' home in Newton, Massachusetts, and shoveling their their uh, snow covered driveway. Right,
2: <laughs> right. They lived right down the street, as it turned out. Yeah, yeah. But then these two guys—the n- the night of snowy bliss—we we'll call it.
0: <laughs> and these two guys, by the way, you see pictures of them. They're both in suits and ties, short hair, thin ties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they're pretty think, much think Mad Men, the, sh- yeah. the sh- TV show Mad Men. You know? Yeah, maybe, maybe a <laughs> little less stylish, uh, but right. <laughs> uh, they—they're indistinguishable to my eye from any other uh, college professor of that era. These are not wild-eyed, radical-looking guys.
2: No, no, and it wasn't until like, even—I mean, you see pictures of the. Uh, there's a picture in the book of Lurie in 1966, uh, where he still has that look. Uh-huh. And, and Leary went back and forth. You know, Albert, of course, is the one, and and Andrew Weil. They they both really transform themselves. You know, Albert goes off to India and comes back. You know, with as the long beard and the yeah. beads and the robes, and as right. as, as Ram Das. Uh, yeah.
0: And they and they, uh, in their academic fashion, start a project, the Harvard psilocybin project, where they start administering psilocybin to various experimental subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of science, if any, were they really doing? Well, it was an experiential kind of science. Let's put it that way. They were giving these drugs
2: to mostly to graduate students, uh, then to a couple different populations. And they were, they were interested in just what is the experience? Let's document the experience. Mm. So, I mean, if that's science, that was the science.
0: Mm. And we'll be back with Don Latten talking about the Harvard Psychedelic Club in just a moment.
1: Ralph, the time has come. Time has come to go out of your mind. Are you ready, Ralph? Are you ready to die and be reborn? No. No, first you must be in a state of grace. First, you must examine yourself in this mirror of confession.
0: You're listening to The 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today we're flashing back to the early days of the psychedelic 60s with journalist and author Don Latin. His new book is The Harvard Psychedelic Club, How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil Killed the 50s and Ushered in a New Age for America. Now, along with the Harvard psilocybin project, which involved this, these sessions where they were giving psilocybin, and by the way, a lot of it was synthesized psilocybin from Sandoz Labs in Switzerland. It wasn't just wasn't plain old right. mushrooms. Right? No, no,
2: it was pharmaceutical
0: psilocybin, yeah. so they can yeah. control the dose. Right. Yeah. So they're giving it to graduate students, to colleagues, to friends, and other people, and seeing what happened. There was this experiment we've now mentioned uh, once or twice. The Good Friday experiment. Can you can you summarize that? Right. This was
2: uh, an, an experiment that was that was done with tw- uh, twenty uh, seminary students from Andover Newton Seminary. It was actually at Marsh Chapel, in actually the basement of Marsh Chapel uh, at Boston University. And what they, what it was was a double blind experiment. Where they gave a placebo to 10 of the the seminarians, which actually was uh, a drug that made your skin tingle and so you'd think you were getting something. And then 10 got psilocybin, the real thing. And it was the the experiment was conducted on Good Friday in the basement below the main sanctuary, a big church at Marsh Chapel. I went back and I visited this room and uh, tried to commune with those spirits when I was doing my research. Uh, And upstairs, there's a huge congregation. Of course, it's Good Friday, and 1962, and uh, Howard Thurman, the famous civil rights leader, was actually delivering the, the, the sermon. And they piped an audio feed of the sermon down and the whole service, the music and everything down into this really kind of tomb-like small chapel in the basement of this building. And uh, the idea was to see if this drug psilocybin could produce an authentic religious experience. And they even – they had a questionnaire, which the students later filled out, which was designed to determine whether you were having a mystical experience. And it was questions like – did you experience awe and wonder and transcendence and unity and things like that so uh it was clear very soon who got the placebo and who <clears throat> who got the the drug because the <clears throat> ones who got the placebo were Either quietly like reading their Bibles or sitting around kind of bored looking, and the other ones were crawling around on the floor and saying "Hallelujah," you know, <laughs> uh, praise Jesus. They were they were acting like more like Pentecostals than uh, you know liberal Protestant <laughs> seminary students. Uh, and uh, the guides or the supervisors also got either the drug or the placebo. Houston Smith got the drug, and he had what what he described as a, one of the most profound experiences he's ever had on on psychedelic drugs that 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 good friday. And I think one reason for that is Houston was uh you know he was an ordained Methodist minister his he was he he, he grew up in China his parents and his grandparents were Mes- Methodist missionaries in China so he was very familiar with these hymns and uh and he took it in a in a uh, in, in a very deep spiritual place uh that uh maybe maybe some other people didn't uh but but anyway um so that was that was the the, the Good Friday experiment, right? and
0: and it seems as though the conclusion was that indeed, uh, you know, a psychedelic drug like psilocybin could induce something like a religious experience.
2: Yeah, I think it is a quote authentic close quote religious experience, whatever that is. The question is not the experience, in, to my, in my mind, and in Houston Smith's mind, which is one of the reasons he separated himself from these guys. Mm. The question is, what do you do with the experience? Does it make you a better person, a more aware, a compassionate person? Uh, does it start a social movement? That and what what is that social movement? What, what you know? What are the aspects of it? And Houston was not impressed with the direction this whole movement was going, which was basically the whole drug culture of mm. the sixties, mm. and. Um, uh, and so uh, he later on separated himself. He, he wrote a paper uh, on the, on that exact question where he didn't really like, denounce Leary, but he he questioned the direction the whole the whole thing was going.
0: So so Houston Smith, as you say, down the line, uh, initially very enthusiastic, distanced himself from uh, the psychedelic movement. Um, meanwhile, though, uh, Leary and Alpert really embraced it for the time. And you can, as one can easily imagine, uh, at an institution like Harvard, this couldn't really last.
2: <laughs> right, right. Well, they were, they were seen as loose cannons very early on. And this research project, which started in the fall of 1960, very quickly morphed into something completely different. I mean, something completely different like that <laughs> people hadn't really seen before, especially at Harvard. And it really became, depending on your point of view, a religious cult around the drugs and them, Lyrian Alpert, a social movement. It really was the beginning of the 60s counterculture, especially the psychedelic part of the 60s counterculture and um, but you know uh, Richard Alpert was very much into being a professor at Harvard and advancing and he was on tenure track and, and all of that and uh, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about what happened with Andrew Weil. Well so yes you know, this is, is you know. where
0: Andrew Weil comes into the story and if um, if Alpert and uh, Leary are becoming like prophets Andrew Weil plays the role of, say, Judas Iscariot in this story. <laughs> good.
2: That's good. That's good. I have to remember that line. Yeah. Right. He, well, what happened was, I mean, you have to remember, first of all, that, that Andrew Weil, Andy, as they called him then, was a whole generation younger, for one thing. And he was a freshman at Harvard. He was 18 years old. And uh, he heard, and he was interested in botany. That was that was his studying his undergraduate years. And he was also interested in in psychedelic plants. He had read *The Doors of Perception* by Huxley, which had just been published six years before. And so he had heard about what was going on with uh, with Professor Alpert and Timothy Leary. So he wanted to volunteer to be a research subject. Um, and he had a friend in his dorm at Harvard, whose name was Ronnie Winston. Who happened to be the son of Harry Winston, which some of you may have heard of, the Harry Winston Jewelry Diamond Company. So they both went over to Leary's office, which happened to be located on Divinity Avenue, by the way, <laughs> right down the, from the <laughs> Divinity School, and asked to be research subjects. But but uh, Leary and Albert had agreed to only use graduate students, specifically to not use undergraduates, because of the you know the, these drugs can be psychologically damaging.
0: Mm. Um, and better to damage a graduate student, certainly. Yeah, I guess so.
2: Well, they do have a certain bit more of maturity, you know. When you're, under, I mean, I told you about, about my story. When I was an undergraduate, I probably shouldn't have taken LSD as an undergraduate. You know, I was really wasn't ready for it. So I think there's some wisdom to that, uh, to that guideline. But anyway, um, so what happened is uh, they they were, they were politely told that they couldn't participate. Uh, They were given some clues about where they might find their own supply, and Andrew Weil actually forged a letter uh, using some Harvard stationery uh, and wrote to the Delta Chemical Company and got – his own supply of mescaline, not psilocybin, but a similar psychedelic substance. And they started use, doing their own kind of undergraduate version of the research project, the, sort of mirroring what the grown-ups were doing with, over uh, at the Department of Social Relations, which was the department Leary and Alpert were actually in. But why was
0: pissed, though? Because... Right. Well, th- so,
2: then, so then what happened so – that, that's what happened initially. Then about six months later, maybe a year la- uh, six months to a year later, what happened is uh, Ronnie Winston ran into Professor Alpert at a party. And Albert, now Ram Dass, you know, I talked to him at length about this, what really happened here. And he, he was a gay man living in the closet at the time. And he admits that he was sort of had a romantic attraction to this dashing, handsome, brilliant young undergraduate, Ronnie Winston. Mm. Uh, both of them – I also interviewed Ronnie Winston. Both of them say nothing sexual happened. But there was this romantic kind of attraction mm-hmm. Uh which may be one reason that Albert got a little careless and even though Ronnie Winston was an undergraduate turned him on to psilocybin
0: but not Andrew Weil
2: but not Andrew Weil and Ronnie Winston was brought into the fold and mm. Andrew Weil wasn't mm. and Andrew Weil got very jealous and decided to expose the uh, abuses and the research protocols <laughs> so to speak so Andrew Weil proposed an investigation at the Harvard. He had been he'd been working at the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper, writing uh, arts reviews, theater reviews, things like that. He proposed to do an investigation into what Leary and Alpert were up to. None of the undergraduates would admit on the record that they had gotten these drugs because they were perfectly happy with uh, with participating and maybe thought it was important research, whatever the reason. So, including Ronnie Winston. So what what Andrew Weil did is he went to went to Harry Winston, Ronnie's father, and said that your son is taking these drugs with a professor at Harvard uh, against university regulations because he's an undergraduate. And if he doesn't admit it to the administration, we're going to put his name in the paper. And like I said, it's a very prominent family. Harry Winston did not want his son uh, (laughs) – did not want his son mentioned in in a Harvard drug scandal. So, so Ronnie Winston was called into the uh, Nathan Pusey's office at Harvard, the president of Harvard, and said, uh, son, did you take psilocybin with Professor Alpert? And Ronnie Winston paused and he said, yes, sir, I did. And it was the most educational experience I've had so far at Harvard. <laughs> and they said, well, we don't care about that. Thank you very much. But that was the piece of evidence. That was the charge which they used to fire Richard Alpert, who while he didn't have tenure, he was on tenure track, and you have to have a cost to fire someone, obviously.
0: But Andrew Weil not only sort of ratted out Alpert to the administration, but he also wrote an expose right. in the part, Harvard part Crimson of, without ever admitting or uh, disclosing that he himself had been doing psychedelics and running his own experiments. Right, right. So he, he's kind and, of and a he was, narc.
2: And, and he, was, he was, it was sort of a narc, and he was... Working as a journalist and as a spy Informant. for the Harvard administration yeah. at the same time, which just yeah. violates all kinds of journalistic Absolutely. ethics, and he was, uh, you know, handing over transcripts of interviews that he didn't even use hmm. to the administration. The deal that Weill had with the administration is he would they would tell him the day before they actually or the day they fired Lyrian Alpert, and he would get the Harvard Crimson would get the story first, and they had their story all ready to go. It ran the next day was picked up by the Boston papers, page one of the New York Times. Leary and Alpert were history at Harvard and thrust into the national spotlight as the dynamic duo to lead us into the psychedelic 60s. So in
0: 1963, Leary and Alpert are fired. Right. And they kind of go on their own journey. Uh, They try to set up shop at various points in Mexico, in the Caribbean. Various governments chase them out. They wind up at this commune in Millbrook, New York. Right. A nice, big, old Victorian house, like 64 rooms. Yeah, a huge mansion. That uh, is given to them by um, a wealthy uh, participant in their mm-hmm. in their drug scene, yeah? yeah. Yes. Uh, Peggy Hitchcock. Peggy
2: Hitchcock and her brothers, Billy and Tommy Hitchcock.
0: Right, right, who have some money and have this place. So they then have this famous sort of commune where they continue the, their acid experiments. So... We have this interesting—I don't know if it's really a climax of the story, but we have this moment when Leary and Alpert are still friends. They're still investigating, and they've evolved this Mm -hmm. transformational gospel of psychedelics, that they're going to really change human history. They're going to open our minds, free us of a lot of restrictive conventions, and and bring humanity together in new ways if we only let them. But things kind of fall apart, as we all know.
2: Well, they started falling apart at Millbrook, you know, uh-huh. even before they. Uh, the scene at Millbrook just became pretty chaotic. I mean, Leary and Albert were now famous. People were showing up, you know, uninvited, uh, to try these drugs, and it, it was really kind of spinning out of out of control. But they they did some experiments. One experiment that I, Albert talks about, Ram Dass talks about in the book, where they, a smaller group of them locked themselves into this. This other building this, this kind of a chalet, which actually was a bowling alley, a private bowling alley on this estate and for two weeks, they took like four hundred micrograms of l s d every or every four hours uh These are you know, insane amounts insane amounts of l s d yeah. to see if they could have some kind of a
0: breakthrough mm-hmm.
2: well, a couple things happened: one, you build up a tolerance so you can only actually get so high. But they wound, up, they wound up hating each other. They couldn't stand each other. And there were like two camps at Millbrook. One, no one, one wouldn't do the dishes or clean up. And, <laughs> and what began is this commune to bring people together in unity and cosmic harmony and explore all these states of higher consciousness. You know, ended with like a rants and recriminations and a lot of bad feelings and, and a real split between uh, Leary and, and, and Alpert. And that's one reason that Alpert wound up coming out to, to hmm. the West Coast. And it was really then, uh, in the final year at Millbrook, that Alpert really saw that LSD was not going to save the world. Um, and he starts going in another direction.
0: The other direction being India and uh, sort of Hindu spirituality.
2: Yeah, he goes off to India in 1967. And he meets a teacher named Neem Karoli Baba. And... and, uh, and does some very serious uh, meditation practice, uh, Buddhist meditations uh, retreats as well, and with this Hindu teacher, and comes back famously uh, reincarnated as uh, Baba Ramdas, and becomes yeah, I think one of the seminal spiritual teachers of my generation. By that I mean the baby boom generation in the late 60s into the 70s and beyond, and showing people a uh, sort of a kinder, gentler way that they can explore these. Uh, states of consciousness that they experience initially on on, on LSD.
0: Baba Ramdas later dropped the baba I think to be a little right. more humble about it <laughs> right. uh, which is an honorific title becomes this very interesting character uh in the eastern spiritual scene here in the US. Interesting I say because um as anybody who's seen him talk or or maybe who's read his writings knows there's always this very interesting self-deprecating quality that I'm not really a guru, and I don't really necessarily know what I'm doing,
2: right? Which makes him all the more appealing as a guru, <laughs> and he knows that too, and he'll play off of that, you know. I mean, he's a very complicated character. <laughs> yeah,
0: he's very complicated. Uh, and
2: uh, but you're right. Yeah, no, he, he in some ways he seems like just another bozo on the bus and the, the further bus, <laughs> uh-huh. or or another seeker. You know, and uh, in some ways he he is, and in some ways he he, he isn't.
0: Uh, And I've heard him, you know, looking back on his life, saying that even during those years, those early years as Baba Ramdas, he was still a bit of a flim-flam man. Yeah. You know, that he was still, he still wasn't being 100% honest, that he was still being a little manipulative, and he was still way too attached to the attention he was getting. Right. So he's constantly had this self-criticism and self-reinvention going on. But the complexity doesn't stop there. There's the fact that he's gay. Right. And despite doing these radical things from nineteen sixty on, you know, taking uh LSD, changing his name to Ramdas, talking about total transformation, having the doors of perception open, changing his whole view of reality, he's still not really come to terms with being gay.
2: Yeah, he struggled with his sexuality. As Richard Albert and as Ramdas, Uh I mean he, he writes – I mean he talked to me and he and – in a previous interview with a gay magazine, he talked – which didn't get much attention at the time. He talked a, a lot about, you know, like going to men's rooms and parks and having hundreds and hundreds of sexual partners. I mean he was – he was a gay sex addict basically um, and uh, – and then he'd have you know uh, women kind of posing as his girlfriend and, and th- that whole that whole thing, which people did you know back in the '60s. You know people, most 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 gay men were in the closet, but he was really struggling with with that. And then we one of the reasons he went to India, not not the only reason or the main reason, but he was still struggling with his sexuality. And he thought he'd become a celibate monk or something, and then he found that he was only a, he was only becoming a horny celibate, <laughs> and that mm. didn't seem like the, the way to go. And for a while, he called himself bisexual. He did have one long-term relationship with with a woman I write about in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, now he he's basically was, was gay.
0: How do you make sense of the fact that a guy who could dispose of so many Western conventions, so many prohibitions and inhibitions, still struggles with this basic act of coming out?
2: Yeah, well, he... he he said I spent three days with him in Maui interviewing him, and we talked about we talked about this. For one thing, he said he says that uh, Tim Leary was not thrilled by the fact that he was a homosexual and thought it would be bad PR and wanted him to keep it all quiet for one thing, so and Leary was his mentor. He, uh, Albert's always kind of the number two guy, mm-hmm. you know, he found this guru later on, mm-hmm. and had some other experiences with other teachers that didn't go so well, another story. But um, Leary did not want him to come out of the closet, and people, people were not coming out of the closet back in the early 60s, but even in the 70s when people started coming, gay men started coming out of the closet and the whole you know, gay pride movement was happening, he kept it very quiet, and he'd call himself bisexual when he really wasn't bisexual, but didn't really want to talk about it. And uh, he was he was struggling with with that, um, and um, you know I'm not really sure. Uh, you know I don't really want to try to psychoanalyze mm. him too much, but you know it wasn't really the main thing he was all about anyway. You know, so he wasn't about his sexuality. He didn't want to become a spokesman for gay men in America because that's not really where he was going. That's mm. not. That's not what he saw himself as the importance of his message. So I think a lot of it was he just didn't want to muddy the waters. And I can kind of under, understand that.
0: Now, uh, well, I'd like to tie up the stories of each of these four guys if, if we could. And, and Houston Smith, as you say, uh, stepped away from the uh, the drug scene completely and, and, you know, continued his life as essentially a scholar of religion, a very, very famous one, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually retired. Andrew Weil... I mean, people know who he is now. He's Dr. Weil. He is maybe the most famous proponent, and, uh, or at least one of them, of uh, what he calls integrative medicine. Right. And uh, also the, uh, the seller of many a product, and, and I guess he's done quite well for himself. I mean, you list a few. Dr. Weil for Origins, Plantadote Mega Mushroom Face Serum, Banana Manna Pure Fruit and Nut Bars, Weil's Wild Alaskan Sockeye Salmon Sausage, Dr. Weil's 12-inch Walk. <laughs> I mean, (laughs) is this guy, um, you've met him, you've talked to him. um, Is this guy who basically narked on Richard Alpert, uh, who helped bring down the Harvard Psilocybin Project while he himself, while, was experimenting with mescaline and later became someone who wrote for High Times Magazine advising people, you know, in the drug culture about the best ways to get high? Is this guy just an opportunist and a hypocrite, or is there something more to him?
2: i think there's something more to him actually um he i in my he redeems himself in the end in my mind in in, in my book and he had, but you know he was a kid. Yeah, he was 18, 19, 20 years old when, he, when all this was going down with Leary and Alpert. He's ashamed of what he did. And he's tried to apologize many times mm. over the years mm. to Leary and Alpert. Mm. And Leary forgave him before he died in 1996. And Albert, they've sort of publicly made up, but there's still some hard, hard feelings. Mm. And I write about that in the book. Mm. You know, Alpert wishes he could forgive him. But he's still mm. – it still pushes people's buttons. But, no, he's, he, is, he is ashamed of what he did. And, you know, and yes, he is a businessman. And he's made a lot of money. I mean, he was on the cover of Time magazine twice in the 90s. Uh, he was named one of the most 25 influential people in America by Time magazine. He's done a lot of good work, I think, in bringing together Eastern and Western medicine. He's made a lot of money by selling you know, uh, vitamins and dietary supplements and other products. On the other hand, he's taken some of the profits from that and put it into this other work, which I think is very valuable in talking about real health reform in this country, not just how we pay for it. So uh, so I, he does redeem himself in the end.
0: And finally, there is the most elusive, unclassifiable guy in this story, Timothy Leary, <laughs> yeah. at least for me. I mean, I I think I grew up with images of him as this kind of combination – Huckster, showman, flake, prophet, cult figure, capable of of saying or doing just about anything. And at various points in his his biography, after the the Millbrook commune breaks up, he runs for governor of California against Ronald Reagan at one point. Uh, in fact, you say he was the um, he was the subject of the Beatles song "Come Together."
2: Right, that was his his campaign slogan, "Come Together," and John Lennon used it uh, to. Uh, his inspiration to write come, the Beatles song "Come Together."
0: So you can explain to me what they meant by "Here Come Old Flat Top." <laughs> he come grooving up slowly. He got juju eyeball. He won holy roller. O- only
2: if you take this dose of LSD with me, and then we'll, we'll, then only only then we'll be able to t- decipher that. No, no, you're 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 right. I mean, who was Timothy Leary?
0: And and, and I want to add a little yeah, bit that he becomes yeah. a he becomes a fugitive. He's uh, arrested several times for marijuana possession and. Hit with a really tough sentence. Uh, At one point, he was imprisoned uh, near San Luis Obispo in the California men's colony. He escaped prison. With the help of the weather underground. With the help of Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, the supposed terrorists that Obama uh, palled around with, according to Sarah Palin. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) We don't want to go there. Uh, uh, He becomes a fugitive. He runs off to Switzerland, ends up in Algiers with Black Panthers. Right. Um, comes back to the U.S. after selling out some of his old friends to the to the Fed. Well, he's, to make he's kidnapped deal.
2: by the CIA in Afghanistan and brought back and thrown into prison. Oh, excuse me, I then, missed that. Then, <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: then uh, uh, extraordinary rendition, they call it now. Uh, yeah. thrown back in prison, gets out by ratting on some of his old friends on the left, some of the lawyers uh, with the uh, work for the Weather Underground and. Yeah, I mean, the guy just lives in an incredible life, an incredible life. And yeah, who was Timothy Leary? Was he a brilliant prophet, explorer of higher consciousness, or was he just a shameless self-promoter and a con artist? And the person who answered that question best is Timothy Leary, who said, you get the Timothy Leary you deserve. And there's a certain wisdom in that and a certain evasion in that. And that tells you all you need to know about Timothy Leary. That's why I call him the trickster. He wasn't just a rebel. I mean, there was a, a, a method to his madness. He was trying to wake us up and get us thinking about everything in a new way. Um, but he was all of those things. He was all of those things. He was the most revered and reviled character of, of the 60s counterculture. And uh, I think that su- sums it up. You get the Timothy Leary you deserve.
0: <laughs> uh, Don, you say um, in your book that these guys changed the way – we look at reality, and in fact, the subtitle of your book says How Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil killed the 50s and ushered in a new age for America. Is that an overstatement, or do you think they really did that? I think it's somewhat of an overstatement. <laughs> I, did,
2: I didn't actually ever write those words. <laughs> <laughs> the publisher. The subtitle. I mean, I love the main title, which they came up with. I had another title, which I don't like as much, the Harvard Psychedelic Club. You know, when you're trying to sell books, you, you know, on the cover you may overstate. The co- of course, they, you know, they didn't single-handedly or, or with, I guess they have eight hands altogether, uh, killed the 50s. But they had a lot to do with it. They really did. And, and it's not so much that they killed the 50s, but they came together right on the cusp, but literally on the, on the, in the beginning of the 60s. And they did lay the foundations for a lot of the social, psychological, and spiritual revolution that would be the 1960s. So um, yeah, of course, a lot of other things were going on in the 60s, the Civil Rights Movement, the uh, Vietnam War, of course. But um they they were they were they were key characters in, in trying to understand the sixties.
0: Well can I end this interview by just simply saying, oh wow. <laughs> How about far out, man? Far out, man. <laughs> Don Latin. His new book is the Harvard Psychedelic Club. And this is the Seventh Avenue project on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, your host. So we just heard the story of the Harvard psychedelic experiments from the vantage of a journalist, Don Latin. Now a view from the trenches. Paul Lee is a former professor of philosophy at UC Santa Cruz, and at the beginning of the 60s, he was a student at Harvard Divinity School. Paul got to know Houston Smith, then teaching in the philosophy department at MIT, who in turn introduced him to Timothy Leary. And on Good Friday of 1962, Paul Lee was one of those in the basement of Marsh Chapel at Boston University where the mystical properties of psilocybin were being tested on a group of seminary students. Paul was one of the so-called guides in that experiment, and like the student guinea pigs, the guides received either a dose of psilocybin or a placebo.
3: Well, I got the placebo. (laughs) I was screwed. (laughs) You know, and the placebo was tartaric acid, so it gave you prickly heat. What kind of mystical experience? That was like kind of going to hell, you know. You got real hot and and itchy, <laughs> and I could tell fairly quickly that that wasn't going to lead to you know any mystic visions. Oh,
0: really? Uh, you know, some Christian martyrs would say that was yeah, good for really.
3: you. Really? <laughs> Not this one. Um, w- well, what did you observe then on the part uh, of the uh, the students who did? It was get- Looney Tunes. I mean, here were these guys. Just, you know, totally out of their mind. One guy got up and stood by a piano and tried to give some kind of totally incoherent sermon. I think he even tried to break the piano. And another guy got loose and went out on Commonwealth Avenue or wherever the main thoroughfare was outside Marsh Chapel. And they had to go out and and rescue him, I mean, and bring him back in because he was out of his mind. So you, you had this, phenomenologically, it was just a bunch of loony nuts Kind of moving around, acting like they were like they were crazy.
0: But correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of all of those nuts reported afterwards that it was a religious kind of experience. I don't know if they them. all
3: did, but the uh, you know, given the set and setting, Thurman, who was uh, you know kind of a colleague of Martin Luther King, had a, one of these you know rhapsodic black ministers' voices. He, he was piped in from the Good Friday service that was being held upstairs in the chapel. I, you know, the whole thing was uh, conducive, whether you took a drug or not, to having some kind of religious experience. So I think almost all of them reported that they did.
0: Mm. You, you know, it's funny, Paul, as people reminisce about their own experience with hallucinogenic drugs or watching others, it's almost always humorous. You know, it's almost always a kind of giggle about the crazy way people behave. And I think that's, that's, that's interesting. Some people might regard it as horrifying. Um, why is it so funny for a lot of people
3: uh, when they talk about this stuff. Well, because all bets are off, you know. It kind of is a way of clearing the decks of all of the confines and constraints that ordinary consciousness uh, labors under. And so when you loosen up all the screws and everything floods in on you, it's uh, often an extremely exhilarating experience. But for some people who can't handle it, they sink under it. You know, and that's the notorious death episode that a lot of people go through, especially with respect to LSD. Psilocybin was a lot easier. It's uh, half as long in duration. LSD really wears you out. I've only taken it two or three times and not for 40 years. And um, I haven't haven't taken any psychedelic drugs for the last 40 years. That was enough of it. And it uh, was a way of disrupting your life and uh, compromising or even undermining your career. So we all saw the handwriting on the wall in terms of how revolutionary this was and what a breakthrough it was in terms of how you experience reality. So, uh, where does the humor come in? I don't know. Uh, I remember one time taking psilocybin and, and it was like we were on a cruise and, uh, everybody laughed and, uh, had the greatest time. It was one of the greatest times of my life. And I, it's partly what the drug induces is this immense hilarity mm. And uh, that's uh, commonly experienced, I think.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you back up and tell me about the very first time you took psilocybin? This was under the guidance of Timothy Leary at
3: Harvard? That was LSD. LSD, yeah. the very first experience the very you first had. very first one.
0: So you went all the way yeah.
3: at the very beginning. Right. And it was at Houston's home, and there were maybe four couples. And it was real, uh, you know, nobody could really be told how to prepare for it because it uh, clobbers you. <laughs> and I'm, they had, we were in the Houston Smiths recreational room and they had a fire in the fireplace and it backed up. So the room filled with smoke. Well, that didn't help. Then somebody vomited. That didn't help. And one guy tried to beat up his wife uh, and that didn't help. And then they played Wagner's Flight of the Valkyries. Are you kidding me? <laughs> So it was a real strange experience. And my father-in-law had recently died, and my wife sort of hallucinated me as her dead father-in-law and kept looking in my shirt for the lock of hair that she had put on him and kept asking for the anecdote. Does anybody have the anecdote? And that was considered to be sort of funny.
1: A play on antidote. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And then next to me, Houston uh, was prone through the whole time, except about every hour or two he 'd sit up and look at me and go wonderful, Paul wonderful and down he 'd go for another two hours, so Houston was a you know classic mystical guy in his whole demeanor, you know the, one of the major professors of religion in the country, so he was a natural for it
0: mm. well, Houston Smith was having a good time, but you 're describing a guy who tried to beat up his wife yeah, that guy. Uh, someone who threw up. Um and and uh your own uh challenges listening to Wagner et cetera, et cetera while having your first LSD experience. Um what was it about that experience that uh didn't make you want to uh flee and, and never take drugs again?
3: Oh I yeah, mean, I had a great time. It was it in a way it was the flight of the Valkyries. You you ride on out and you have, you know, you go through this whatever it is, and then you come back again and you go out again and come back again. And you finally get confused on these multiple uh, excursions that you make in your consciousness where things open up in this most extraordinary way. So I had a great time. In fact, halfway through, George Litwin, who was the experimenter under Leary that gave us LSD, looked at me and said, oh, you look like you're doing wonderfully. Would you like some more? Oh, boy. More? (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure.
3: So anyhow, I had a wonderful time. My wife didn't. She really didn't want to go with it. And so she never took psychedelics again.
0: Did you become then um, a sort of charter member of the uh, uh, Leary-Alpert-Metzner-Harvard-Psilocybin Project? Charter
3: member is a good way to put it. There's a remarkable book that uh, a guy wrote that you know, makes it sound like he was there for everything when he wasn't. He reconstructed it all. Call, all. It's called "Storming Heaven," and I was stunned at how uh, brilliantly he captures what went on, as though he were and had been a, an eyewitness. And I'm not mentioned, so I thought, "Oh, <laughs> I was on the second team. I wasn't an experimenter uh, under Leary, so I wasn't part of the inner circle of guys that were working with." the psychedelic drugs in order to you know, carry on experiments. But I did become the editor of the Psychedelic Review with Ralph Metzner and Ralph von Eckertsburg. And so I had a kind of one foot in and one foot out. Mm. Um,
0: during that time when they were active at Harvard and then after Leary and Alpert were fired from Harvard and went on to try to start their own community, eventually winding up in Millbrook, New York, were you part of that cadre then? That
3: Yeah, I, my wife tells me that I wanted us to move to Millbrook Because it was such an adventure, and she had, you know, (laughs) no way, Jose. So there's no way we were going to join up like that. But I did visit uh, Millbrook a number of times, so I had a good sense of how they were operating there and what they were doing and so on.
0: Um, You mentioned to me that in your entire life, you've only taken LSD a couple of times. Mm
3: -hmm. Two or three times. For psilocybin, maybe twice for LSD and that was it.
0: So this is interesting. You're part of the quote Harvard Psychedelic Club to use Don Latin's term. Part of that group that was pioneering this idea that uh hallucinogenic compounds could really change people and change humankind. And yet you didn't take very many.
3: Didn't need to. You know, it was too tumultuous. Yeah, there was there were I mean, some of the experimenters under Leary, like Metzner and uh George Litwin and Gunther Weil would take uh, LSD and go and teach just to see if they could actually handle a class high. Now, that seemed to me so stupefying. I couldn't believe anybody would, would uh, venture that. But that's, And then there are guys that wanted to do it every day. They want, They never wanted to come down. So all that was very... Uh, alarming as far as how it could take over your life, and I didn't want that to happen.
0: Mm. Did you um, go along with the idea that this was a potentially history-making discovery, that these compounds could really change the course of uh, of human development and open people's minds and liberate people and all the other things
3: that were said— yeah, well, that was actually what was happening. I mean, you could tell that uh, something uh, remarkable had occurred of a historical turning point. You have to understand that consciousness was the big bugbear then, as it still is now. Nobody could define consciousness. Behaviorism had taken over psychology through guys like B.F. Skinner. And behaviorism was the bracketing of consciousness in favor of studying behaviors and stimulus response stuff and positive and negative reinforcement and so on. And Leary was a behaviorist psychologist and had written one of the classic textbooks. Well, now here he's bombarded so that he's got to take consciousness seriously in a way that had been bracketed. And so that was the turning point where consciousness comes back into psychology from which it had been excluded And needed to be taken seriously again, but nobody really knew what to do with it. So even the word hallucinogen was uh, extremely uh, labile. Nobody really knew how to define a hallucinogen. To me, it's funny to think back on the conflict over, is this insanity or is this a religious experience? Take your pick. So that's how unstable the terminology was and still is to this day. I can remember when there was an argument about psychedelic it was they said we have to spell it psychodelic with a o instead of an e to be to have it really uh, faithful to its latin origins well we didn't want to do psychodelic because that's what we were trying to get away from so we picked psychedelic and went the heck with it that's the way it's going to be and so now the the word psychedelic has been given up by people that are still active in that kind of research and they talk about entheogens. Entheogens uh referring to a godlike state or a yeah. theological yeah. state. So you know that's kind of buying the bullet on Wanting it to be mysticomimetic rather than psychotomimetic.
0: The the old uh, understanding uh, of of psychedelic drugs was that they essentially recreated you know a state of mental pathology psychosis. Yeah, and it was
3: used as a training tool for psychiatrists. Uh huh. So you, it gave them a sense of what it was like to be crazy.
0: It's funny how the uh, the terms themselves all, all contain a viewpoint. So psychotomimetic. Isn't it? That's amazing.
3: Yeah. How language, uh, in a way, determines that.
0: Yeah. Um. So what was your relationship then to Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and those other folks in the the years after, after, say, Millbrook
3: in the mid-60s? I saw Tim now and then. Uh, He came and stayed with us when he came and gave a talk at the Catalyst, and and that's when he was going with Rosemary. And uh, so it was fun having him as a house guest. And um, I didn't see too much of Alpert. I was more friendly with Tim than I was with Alpert. But I I saw Richard once in a while when he lived in Santa Cruz, but uh, we never became close. And I was never really very close to Tim as far as a real close personal friend. But I I enjoyed meeting Frank Barron here in Santa Cruz when he came to be a professor at UCSC. And he was Tim's best friend and a wonderful professor of human creativity, which was his field. So Frank and I got to be very good friends and... uh, I always cherished that uh, relationship.
0: He was another Harvard
3: uh, alum? He turned on Tim. I mean, I may have got that garbled down, but i yeah, it was always my belief that, or understanding that uh, Frank introduced Tim to uh, psilocybin, which is what got Tim going.
0: It's funny. I don't want to make a, a really um, completely facile um, comparison here, but when you talk about the history of psychedelic drugs like this, you can trace this lineage of who turned on who going yeah. back and back and back a bit like Masters and Disciples or uh, a, a lineage of sort of transmission. You oh, know?
3: <laughs> I mean, I love that theme. And I was introduced to it by Baker Roshi. When I mean, uh, here's a guy who does the LSD conference whom I meet when I first come to California to teach here in Santa Cruz. He be- became my first friend. And he's the guy that receives the Zen Buddhist transmission. So the notion of uh, spiritual lineage that is transmitted in an actual spiritual, substantial way, spiritual substance and its transmission is fascinating to me. We have a version of that in Christianity with the apostolic succession and the laying on of hands and the initiation of priests accordingly. So in a way, that's what it's like. Mm. Can you... um shed any
0: light on the mystery, uh, at least for many people, that is Timothy Leary. Uh, He's one of these figures in history who, at a distance, you know, reading about him, hearing about him, it's very hard to get a handle on this guy. He seems like a very ambiguous character.
3: Well, he was Irish. (laughs) <laughs> and you know so he was a chameleon and w- when we went to visit him uh, we organized the meeting to say goodbye to him because we knew he was dying and it was a big reunion for all of us who were close to him at Harvard so we went to see him and one of the guys was Peter John who is the managing editor for the Psychedelic Review and one of my best friends and a kind of a little you know so at one uh, very touching moment when we're gathered around Tim, who at the time seemed to weigh something like 80 pounds. He was like a little rag doll. And yet his spirit was so strong, uh, almost as if it was hovering over his head. And Peter John, who's a little thick, said to Tim, well, who is Timothy Leary? And we all go, oh, Peter, come on. And Tim, without uh, skipping a beat, said, people get the Timothy Leary they deserve. I think Latine quotes that. And that was a wonderful moment. What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just that he was, (laughs) I've had that problem in my life. People think, uh, you know, I remember a woman when I was interviewing for a job said, you know, on the one hand you're in and whereas on the other hand you're in. I thought, why can't you be both? You know, people don't swing easily with multifaceted personalities. And that was clearly the case with Tim.
0: When you look back on that time you spent at Harvard in and around that circle of people that included Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert and uh others who were, were um who were uh blazing this trail, you know, uh exploring consciousness with the use of drugs, you remember it with great fondness?
3: Yes. I do. Because we I developed well, wonderful friendships at the time. Actually, my best friend, Ralph von uh, I I met uh, through that group, and he became a professor of psychology at Duquesne, and um, you know was the best friend I ever had. So that was a wonderful experience, and uh, yeah, you know, it was as great as adventure as I've been on, as far as what all that meant. I I. I kind of regret now that I didn't make more of it than I did, and I think it was because I was too dumb. I didn't didn't have somehow the intellectual resources to cope with what was happening, to have made uh, more of a contribution. I I became a critic of the whole thing here because I talked about the tyranny of being hip, and I thought that was a wonderful phrase for the necessity of being initiated if you became a student at UCSC. There was such a pressure on people to turn on and uh, tune in and drop out and that whole thing. And when I first met my first casualties here, students that never returned from the trip, Uh, and became permanent casualties, they had to open up uh, uh, an aspect of social welfare in the state that would pay such casualties so much a month for the rest of their lives because they had been destroyed. And once one meets somebody that that's happened to, it gives you huge pause about whether or not one should indulge.
0: Mm. This was in the very early days of UCSC, in yeah. the, the mid-late 60s? Yeah.
3: It was almost like Santa Cruz was created for people to come to the Redwoods and to turn on. It can, was so widespread.
0: I can just hear the administration today wincing at that comment. Yeah, well, that's,
3: <laughs> that was the case. You know, it's like Santa Cruz was a hippie plot <laughs> to take over higher education. Uh. And it uh, it lasted for a while, and then about 1970, I, th- I experienced a turn away where students uh, started to worry about getting a job.
0: Mm. Well, thanks a lot, Paul.
3: Nice to talk to you. Paul Lee, who
0: definitely does have the anecdote. He ended up getting his Ph.D. in the philosophy of religion from Harvard and joining the faculty of UC Santa Cruz in its early years from 1966 to 1972. And by the way, Paul Lee mentioned a couple of names you may or may not have recognized. One was Frank Barron, a friend of Timothy Leary's, a co-director of the Harvard Psilocybin Project, and later a professor of psychology at UC Santa Cruz. The other was Baker Roshi, a.k.a. Richard Baker, who was for a time the leader of the San Francisco Zen Center. I'm Robert Polly. Be sure to tune in and turn on your radio next Sunday at noon, when I'll be back with another installment of the 7th Avenue
1: Project.